0: Welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bellati. and as we speak, I am sitting in my bedroom in Maryland. I came here a couple days ago um, from New Jersey just to kind of get away from the general area of New York because, I mean, there's a lot going on up there. If you guys have been watching the news, it's kind of scary. It's scary to know that my home is kind of where a lot of this pandemic is really just a hot spot you know that's what they call it so I decided to come home to Maryland and stay with my family for a bit here I'm not quite sure how long I'll be here it's really hard to say I'm hoping after Easter I'll be able to go back to New York but I'm not rushing it I'm just kind of playing it by ear and you know doing what I do best which is making content working on client work, just doing my normal day, but doing it in Maryland. And it's a little different because, of course, here I'm surrounded by my family, and I don't have a huge space to work, and I don't have my desk, and you know, those things. Um, Don't have my big monitor, which I'm missing right now, but I am making do, I'm counting my blessings, everything is okay. Okay all is well. So anyway, before I get into today's episode, which I promise is a good one, I do just want to kind of talk to you guys honestly about how I'm feeling right now and just like what my main concerns are and like what my main vibe is as a person because I feel like I just love how the podcast, I can really just let it like lay it out, lay it on you, tell you guys what's going on. So Um, I actually stumbled across this quote yesterday when I was researching. I'm always researching a few different people for the podcast and I kind of narrow it down to one person I want to talk about. And I was very close to talking about Marie Antoinette in this episode, but I decided against it. Maybe I'll talk about her at a different time, but she did say something that kind of stopped me dead in my tracks because it's very, it just kind of describes how I'm feeling right now. And it says... Um, She said this as a 21-year-old. So when she was 21, she was queen um, at the time. She confessed in October of 1777 to her advisor, "Um, I am terrified of being bored, she said. And that kind of sums up her life, if you guys know anything about Marie Antoinette and how just lavish and extravagant her life was and how just above and beyond she went on everything. She had like 9,000 gowns made or something like that in her lifetime. But yeah, so... I, I kind of agree with her in that regard because I feel like right now I've just been keeping myself super busy so I can kind of not really think fully about what's going on, not really process it, not really just kind of wallow and kind of face the fact that or face the music kind of that I probably won't be back in New York City living my normal life for quite a bit you know even seeing the news is kind of just freaking me out it just it's just such a like of course I know it's a serious thing people are dying it's super serious but I'm selfishly just I just miss my normal life I miss how just even mundane tasks like walking around the corner to the laundromat like I miss that okay and I also feel like I didn't properly leave my apartment behind like I, I I didn't properly I thought I was living for a week like if you asked me like when I was going to New Jersey with my friends to the beach house I was like la da. I'll probably be back in a week or two weeks as they said like you know two weeks is when it'll level off and people will be fine and whatever and Trump keeps saying it's gonna be something like April or like something like Easter and well I, I just I don't know it's just like I'm hearing all these conflicting things and I just feel like the second that I stop moving and just doing things working whatever creating stuff for you all you've probably seen me just like at an all-time high of productivity on instagram and everything i i feel like the second that i slow down i'm gonna boredom is gonna creep in and when that creeps in i feel like the fear it just opens the door to all of these emotions of fear and panic and all these things so i've been trying my best to stay very busy and I do know, I remember seeing this quote recently in, um, on Instagram, that boredom is a sign of privilege and the fact that we can be bored, we can be twiddling our thumbs at home, shows our privilege and I fully recognize that. But I think I'm honestly just terrified of the point of being bored because I, I just don't do well with boredom. I mean, if you've ever just kind of thought about me as a person, the fact that I was creating just like busting my ass creating YouTube content in the summer of like freshman year of college like I I was not one of those people that was just like going to parties and like messing around I was creating content because I was like I just need to I don't know what it is about me I'm just like a constant I need to be constantly buzzing and constantly moving and that's just like how I work and that's like the artist and the the person in me that pro, the, the productivity person in me I don't know That's just kind of my vibe right now. So yeah, reading that quote about, you know, terrified of being bored and just all the ways that knowing Marie Antoinette, all the ways that she just rebelled against boredom and constantly kept herself busy. Like, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I feel like we're very similar. Although a lot of elements of us are not similar, I would say. But yeah, her story is pretty messed up too. I want to talk about her at some point, but it just didn't really work for this episode. Um, And you guys will see the pretty time relevant ways this episode will unfold. Today I'm going to share with you guys a startling discovery that I made and I could be the very last person on earth to come to this conclusion and like everyone already knows this but I did nonetheless want to share it with you guys because I just cannot get over it and I won't shut up about it. So basically you know with all this stuff going on as we know there's a lot going on in the world with the current pandemic we're living through and everything, but I did kind of make a startling discovery in terms of how the events of the last flu pandemic in 1918 and everything that came after that is very eerily similar to what we are living through right now. And I feel like, okay, I hate to say it, but I think we kind of jinxed ourselves. So when the clock struck midnight on New Year's, you know, January 1st, 2020, and I was limping home because my feet hurt so bad with my friend Allie carrying my high heels in one hand, you know, we kind of wished for 2020 to be the best year yet. We kind of wished, you know, we were like, oh, we're repeating the roaring 20s, the roaring 20s was such a magical, exciting time, and in this year 2020, we get a chance to live that and a lot of us kind of thought that way. I believe there was a few magazines that even put out stories like we're in the roaring 20s, you know. And people kind of we kind of jinxed ourselves, guys, cuz I mean, in a way, we jinxed ourselves because you know what they say, it's like careful what you wish for because you just might get it, well, I think, guys, we got what we wished for, but potentially not exactly what we wished for because I think a lot of us imagine and just envision the 1920s as this dazzling, very exciting time, this Gatsby era, the flappers, the the fringe, the, you know, just the very exciting time of all these innovations, the TV, the car, the jukebox, like all that stuff getting invented. But we don't really think about what happened before that. And quite frankly, what happened after that. But I mean, that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the before. So before the 1920s kind of rang in and people were excited and spending money and Acting lavish and excited about life. And you know what, guys, for being so excited about history, you guys know I love history and I really always have loved it, but for some reason, I guess it's just because I have a really poor memory, to be honest. I, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I have a very bad memory unless I write things down or like really reinforce it. It's like I was one of those kids that would memorize things and it would just go right like in one ear, out the other. I completely forget everything. So when I did some reading on this about the 1920s and just like the years that led up before that and like what happened, I was shocked to find out all of these events happened so like back to back and I just didn't make that connection when I was studying this in high school and middle school. Didn't at all make this connection and now I am and like the world is shattered. So basically, just to give you guys some background, so so from 1914 to 1918 we had World War One. Which of course caused mass casualties. It was a really big financial blow, big burden on the economy. And right after that, we had the Spanish flu pandemic or the 1918 flu pandemic from 1918 to 1919. And then after that we had the post-war flu recession from 1918 to 1919 so during the kind of flu situation and past that we had a lot of hardship financially and then all of a sudden it's 1920 and it's the depression of 1920 to 1921 then right after that in like around 1922 for whatever reason the dow rises the stock market is booming everyone has money everyone's excited and it's the roaring 20s I did not know just like the progression of those events and of course there's a lot of things that happened in each of those things I just listed. I just had them kind of broken out but like all that shit happened and then we it kind of gave birth to the most exciting innovative time the roaring 20s and you know what I mean I won't even say we're kind of going through something nearly as bad. I can't really fully speak on it yet because it's so fresh but think about going through a war, the stock market crashing you know, the flu pandemic, then recession, then depression, and these people came out the other side and still had the energy to party in 1922. Like, look at what came after this, you know, in the aftermath of all of this. You know, how many people at the time would have predicted that during the war, pandemic, recession, depression years, that the 1920s would have been the best, just most innovative, prosperous periods our country has ever seen in the United States? So, as we know, the 1920s ushered in the automobile, the airplane, the radio, the assembly line, the refrigerator, electric razor, all of these things, and there was a massive stock market boom, an explosion of spending. I mean, I hope all of us have read or seen The Great Gatsby and kind of can visualize what this time period looked like and felt like and tasted like and smelled like because, I mean, it was an explosion of new money in a very war-torn and, you know, pandemic torn, money torn place. And I'm just, yeah, I just, I don't know why in all of my years of studying the 1920s in, in high school and college and, all of my schooling, I just didn't really make the full connection. It's almost like you never really make the full connection on things until you like look into it yourself and have a personal motivation because of course like half the things I studied in school I just did because I had to, you know, and I was probably distracted by cute guys in my classes and parties and all the things that seem more important than history at the time until you are quite literally reliving it as we are now. But yeah, so I was just interested to see, or just so intrigued, I think is a better word, at how our ancestors powered through a very bleak time. And the thing is, when you're reading history and you're sitting in the classroom and you're kind of experiencing this post, you know, or not first hand, what's second hand or third hand? I don't even know. We're, we, we're definitely not there, but our ancestors were. It honestly doesn't feel quite plausible that anything remotely similar could happen to us you know, we sit there in history and we're like, oh, this is a story of a time that's long gone. Our technology is so advanced now and we can get through anything. You know, there's nothing that humankind can't take on now because we're so advanced, yada, yada, yada. Well, look at us, okay? We're currently battling something that we don't even know. We don't have a cure. We don't know what to do. People, very smart people are panicking. And I mean, it's just the same sort of thing how it was in 1918 and on when people were dealing with a very similar, I mean, of course, not similar um, similar antibody, whatever you call it. I'm not good at science. It's not a similar just whole virus. I guess maybe it's similar. I don't really know. I'm not going to speak to that. But a similar vibe in the sense of people not really knowing what the heck is going on, people being ordered to stay inside, people having already dealt with the, the mass loss from the war and having to deal with such financial burden. Of course, we're dealing with it now, but it was so different back then. And of course, I mean, even as a woman sitting here, I'm saying like there was such, women didn't really have their own estates, their own finances, their own power. So they were utterly helpless in a time like this. Whereas we have a lot more power now, um, immense more power now. And we have responsibility and we can own our own households and whatever. So things are just a lot different. But I will say though, as a little aside, women did gain some standing and some power during this time back in the early 19, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, that little time period, the teens, um, because the worker shortage caused by the flu and the war opened access to the the labor market for women. And you know, they took jobs outside of the home for the first time ever, and following the conclusion of the war, the number of women in the workforce was actually 25% higher than it had been previously, and um, yeah, so they were gaining some social and financial independence and an increased ability to make decisions on their own, and their personal lives and their professional lives empowered many of them and started to get, you know, get them kind of revved up and ready to fight in the suffragette whole movement that we know so anyway just wanted to say that (laughs) still I mean we I can't help but look back and see kind of into the past and think wow they kind of get us (laughs) a little bit different but they get us but I mean even I read this very startling fact that back in this time period apparently the flu took more casualties than the war and yet people hardly talk about the flu, or they hardly did until now. Um, I didn't even honestly register that it had even happened, and I I don't know why. I, I guess maybe in some of my classes it was talked about, but I know all about World War One and all about the World Wars and the things like that. You know, I know so well because it's something that just it affected more than just it was just so explosive. But if you think about it, the the flu pandemic was just as bad. I don't know why we don't really talk about it. But now I'm talking about it and honestly I think, guys, in a time like this where things are super uncertain and scary and everything, I, you gotta look to history because that's the only thing that is standing there with full fact, you know? This is something that happened, it it happened. No one can dispute that, no one can say, well, I don't agree with that because it's, it's history, it's fact, it's in stone and I don't know, for some reason history really assures me in a time like this it makes me feel better because I mean look at how our ancestors prevailed and look at how 1920 looked and felt and was and and how we got through that how we got through all the shit stuff and then got into the 1920s and then even after that and the great depression we got through that too it's like nothing there's nothing that humankind can't get through okay it's just a matter of being patient and knowing that we are currently writing history right now. We are currently living something that we're going to look back on someday when we have kids and the kids are doing their homework and reading the history books and we're going to be like, yeah, we were alive during that. We were there. And it's also important for me to say that of the people that were infected with the 1918 flu pandemic, so many of them came through the other side. And one of those people being Georgia O'Keefe who is one of my favorite artists of all time. I remember studying her as early as elementary school with my elementary school art teacher, and I was always just in love with her work because you guys know how much I love flowers, and flowers is like her main mojo. She painted 200 flower paintings in her lifetime, and among other things, she was also famous for skulls and New York City scenes, New Mexico scenery, things like that, Um, and I want to talk about her story today because she actually is one of the survivors of the 1918 flu flu pandemic, and a lot of her amazing work we would not see today if she did not survive, and I just think it's really noteworthy that she not only survived uh, the flu pandemic of 1918, she also, I have it written down, she contracted typhoid fever and the measles, and kept going, kept painting, despite both things she even lost her eyesight towards the end of her career and was still drawing with charcoal so i want to talk about her story today because she is just so inspiring i watched her documentary last night so i feel like i have a very solid idea of who she was and what she stood for and everything um although i will say because it was so long ago i don't know you know there's some kind of incongruencies is that what it's called incongruent no inconsistent. I don't know why I brought in congruency in this. That sounds like math and I hate math. Um, yeah, there's some inconsistencies in like some of her stories, but I thought it was still important for me to share her story because she is the mother of American modernism, which is arguably some of my favorite art. And if you're not all that well-versed in art and familiar with it, totally fine. You might even know her just by her enlarged, flower paintings, so basically she would just choose a little small piece of a flower, like the inside or like the, I don't really know the anatomy of a flower, but just like the very small details of a flower and she would fill a huge canvas with just a very small part of a flower. She wouldn't even paint the whole thing, she would just paint like a little small piece of the flower and if you just kind of glance at it you wouldn't even oftentimes know that it was a flower so that was kind of her what she was famous for she painted 200 flower paintings in her life she also painted landscapes of new mexico where she lived for much of her life new york city she loved skyscrapers and she was also famous for painting skulls as i said Um, her skull paintings really kind of just encompassed the american feeling back then of americans prevailing through tough times and she made them super leathery and weather-beaten looking and people looked at these paintings and thought this is kind of the true spirit of america she was quoted as saying nobody sees a flower really it is so small it takes time we haven't time and to see takes time like to have a friend takes time So I thought that was a very interesting quote, especially right now when we have kind of all the time in the world as we are holed up in our homes. We just have all of this time to think to overthink to just be on social media for 8 hours like i literally looked at my um my time on social yesterday and it was like 7 hours i'm like how on earth can i spend 7 hours on instagram like i know it's my job but still like that is terrifying so it's true though no one really has time to see normally and to look at things and really see what you're looking at to really see a flower And now we do, for the first time kind of ever, so... I'm sure Georgia would be pleased with that. So, a bit about Georgia's early life. She was born in 1887 in Wisconsin, and her parents were dairy farmers. So, she grew up on a farm, and she was one of seven children. By the age of 10 years old, Georgia knew that she wanted to be an artist or she wanted to do something with art. And she learned from a local watercolorist at a young age how to do watercolor. And eventually, she actually became an art teacher. So, she was an art teacher and taught in various elementary schools, high schools, and colleges in virginia texas south carolina during the time period of 1911 to 1918 but while she was teaching she was still creating her own art on her her own time kind of experimenting with different mediums we know she started out with watercolor but at this time she was actually working with charcoal um, and she created these really awesome charcoal drawings and these drawings actually which is shocking to me because Charcoal wasn't her, or the medium that we all kind of know her for, we kind of know her paintings that were oil on canvas, that were much more just rich and colorful, and These charcoal drawings were actually the thing that propelled Georgia to her success and to being known by people because it was all because of these drawings and ultimately the the man that kind of discovered her. So uh, basically what happened was Georgia mailed these drawings to a friend of hers um, who was named Anita Pollitzer. Who I believe she was, she was a former classmate and a friend, and I believe she was in New York at the time. This this woman Anita, uh, who was intrigued by them and took them to this man named Alfred Stieglitz at his gallery um, in early 1916. So he had this gallery. He was a photographer, and he actually was just one of those people that knew, you know, Picasso and these really just artsy people of New York uh, before they were famous. And allegedly when he he saw them, he exclaimed at last, a woman on paper and he exhibited her her drawings at his gallery um, in nineteen sixteen or nineteen seventeen that range um, and he found them to be quote the purest, finest, sincerest things that had entered his gallery in a long time and he said that he would like to show them um, to Anita, who actually they didn't tell. Uh, Georgia that her her drawings are being showcased at all in his gallery like she didn't know she wasn't being compensated for them and she had all 10 of these drawings being displayed at a gallery while she was still teaching in uh, Texas I believe at the time somehow she finds out that her art is being displayed and she hops on a train or however and gets to New York from Texas so she gets to New York in 1917 and she goes to see her art in the movie that I watched she actually uh, pitched a fit that her art was being displayed without her permission she got super angry at Alfred Stieglitz who was the gallery owner and photographer that she soon would become very close with so essentially Alfred Stieglitz was 24 years older than O'Keefe and when he when, when she came to visit him in New York the connection between them was just magnetic apparently um Although she was 24 years younger than him, I mean, how he's depicted in photos I've seen, he's not all that cute, but whatever, they fell in love. Um, He actually started photographing her like nude in 1917 when she came to visit, and then he kind of begged her to come back and to stay, and he was actually married at the time uh, to another woman and had a family, and he just kind of begged Georgia to upend her life from wherever she was in Texas and just come to New York so she did um, he provided her with financial support and arranged for a residence for her and a place for her to paint in 1918 so um, she came to New York and they developed a very close personal relationship aka they were hooking up and his wife found out he left his wife for Georgia um, and that was kind of where their love began and her love for New York began where she started painting skyscrapers and various New York City scenes they got married in 1924 um, which will come a bit later but here's a little quote about their relationship by a a biographer who looked into her story so someone said "Um, their relationship was a collusion a system of deals and trade-offs uh, Tacitly agreed to and carried out for the most part without the exchange of a word, preferring avoidance to confrontation on most issues. O'Keefe was the principal agent of collusion in their union. Basically, they had a very tumultuous relationship. Um, with just they, they, butt heads a lot. O'Keeffe, she really wanted kids. Um, Alfred said he was too old and that it would take away from her art. And her art was why she was alive. And she, would, she should not be breeding. She should be painting and whatever. Basically, they loved each other and all that they did, but that did not stop Alfred from having an affair with a much younger woman while he was still married to Georgia. Georgia found out, she became very depressed, um, and she actually was admitted to a psychiatric ward for a bit. She took off about a year of painting, or from painting, and it really did affect her super deeply because she had a lot of love for Alfred, and he claimed to still love her throughout his life even though he was with other people he had a very strange view of love in my opinion and I'm also just one to say like once a cheater, always a cheater (laughs) so taking a quick break in this episode to introduce a sponsor this episode of Thick and Thin is sponsored by Ritual you guys know I've talked about Ritual before but basically just in a nutshell we all want to do the right thing when it comes to keeping our bodies healthy in the long run you know we eat kale salads we drink green smoothies we do all the things we're supposed to do to stay healthy but even still we're still most likely not getting all of our essential nutrients and all the things that we need on a daily basis so enter ritual rituals essentials have all of the nutrients that most of us don't get enough from in our food and there's no shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to our bodies than good basically it's just too easy to take capsules that provide nine nutrients that you need to support a strong foundation for your health Uh, so I personally love taking ritual vitamins I have them Right next to my coffee maker, um, and I just it's just a part of my daily routine now. And I just love how they make me feel. I just feel good that are knowing that you know, no matter what I eat in a week and on a daily basis, I'm still getting all the nutrients that I need as a woman, which we need a lot more than you think that we do. Things like D3 to omega 3 and rituals essential for women basically fills the gaps in our diets. Um, the no nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach. Uh, a among other things. There's no fishy aftertaste. Basically, Ritual is a delivered subscription. It's super easy to get started and it's super easy to snooze it at any time. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients that your body needs delivered every month, no strings attached. So I love Ritual and I'd love for you guys to get started with it. And the truth of the matter is, better health does not happen overnight. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months of using Ritual. So all you have to do is go to ritual.com slash thick and thin. It's thick and thin to start your ritual today. That's ritual.com slash thick and thin. And you can get 10% off your first three months. Thanks to Ritual for sponsoring this episode and let's get back into it. And yeah, Georgia still loved him to the end. She sat with him at his bedside as he died, even though he cheated on her. She still claimed to have loved him her whole life, never loved again kind of depressing but oh yeah but I did want to mention like kind of going back a bit (laughs) she did contract the 1918 flu as I said um, earlier in the episode in 1918 so this was the year that she started falling in love with Alfred so I don't know maybe he got it too I'm not really sure but she all I know is that she recovered and it wasn't very much covered it all in her documentary, which is shocking. I feel like people kind of forgot about the 1918 flu, honestly, until all this started happening. So, But yeah, so after she was in rehab for a bit or in a psychiatric facility, I'm not really sure exactly what it was called at the time, but um, she recovered from her extreme depression over Alfred, moving on to younger woman and leaving her ultimately. So she moved on from that and actually she visited New Mexico for the first time with a girlfriend of hers, I believe. Um, And she absolutely just fell in love with New Mexico and that ultimately became her one true love. I think looking at her story she always claimed to have loved this man Alfred who was much older than her and cheated on her and whatever but I think her one true love was actually New Mexico because she fell in love with this place. She had two homes there. Um, She went and she just loved how quiet it was how untouched how it was a lonely place she she was quoted as saying it was such a beautiful untouched lonely feeling place such a fine part of what I call the far away it is a place I have painted before even now I must do it again she just kept painting New Mexico over and over again in this period she painted um, she was still painting flowers she was painting skulls now um, a lot of very just the things that we know her for was painted during this time period after she was getting over this guy, basically. Um, she would drive around in her Ford Model A car, uh, which she bought and learned to drive herself in 1929. And... Um, Yeah, she just, she loved the Ghost Ranch and northern New Mexico. And this is just my favorite part of the story because I just, I love her spirit in this. People said that O'Keeffe was a very prickly person. That was how they described her, very rigid. She, despite painting these, you know, gloriously colorful paintings of flowers, she mostly wore black. She wore these very masculine hats. She was a very masculine dressed person um but she really loved just like flowery paintings I just love that about her but she was kind of just she was very hard to read by a lot of people and you know what I was reading in my research it was hard to kind of pin her down as someone that wasn't just prickly which is what they said which I find that very harsh because I feel like I don't know watching her movie of course there's some fiction thrown into that but I feel like she just was a little bit more reserved just didn't have a lot of words for the world but she she was harsh when she needed to be but also quiet when she needed to be and I just I thought that was a very cool thing about her but essentially so her art was picked up by the Metropolitan Museum of Art so although you know anthony or anthony where did that come from alfred (laughs) alfred stieglitz her husband um was kind of just a big wrench in her life he also did a lot to propel her forward in the art world so she made a lot of her friends through him um People that were also very famous or would be very famous in the art world. She also, he picked up a lot of investors for her. He picked up a lot of, just he really helped her get her art displayed. And so ultimately her art was displayed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, She had works purchased by them during her lifetime, which is great because a lot of artists we know don't really get to see the fruits of their success in their lifetime, but Giorgio did get to see her success during her lifetime. Um, A lot of it, not all of it, but of course a lot. Lot of it um so she had you know was having all the success happening in new york and yet she still really needed to get out so she did end up living in new mexico for the remainder of her life um i believe she made a few trips back to new york and whatever but for the most part well of course when um, alfred died she went back to his bedside but she was mostly in new mexico she would invite her famous friends down there she was friends with many famous poets and um authors and other artists and people like that composers and she would have them into down to her ranch in New Mexico and they all hung out there and she would often go for walks with her friends there i just it just sounds like such a great just 180 of being just kind of stuck and depressed and sad about a guy and then just saying fuck it i'm going to New Mexico and just setting up a new life with these two ranches i believe she just she just was killing it basically and how the movie depicts it like I want to go to New Mexico now. It looks beautiful. And just even looking at her paintings and the things, the scapes that she painted. Yeah, so that was kind of the remainder of her life in a nutshell. She painted all these different series. She painted different colored flowers. Very, Her style just kind of slowly changed as she aged over time. And ultimately, I did say she started to lose her vision towards the end of her life. Um, and so she, there was this one quote where she said she can only see... She's like, I can still see to the end of my hand, so I can still paint. (laughs) And she couldn't really see much beyond that, but she really relied on her senses, her sense of um, touch, and just going for walks and feeling the sun on her face, she said she loved. Um, And so she kept creating art until basically the very end. She um, was doing charcoal a lot towards the end of her life, which I think is interesting. It kind of just kind of full circle goes back to the beginning of her life where she started with charcoal. She, in 1973, hired this young um, potter as a live-in assistant and a caretaker, and his name was John Bruce Hamilton. He taught O'Keefe to actually work with clay, uh, use her hands, and helped her write her autobiography. He worked for her for 13 years until her death, and after her death, her family actually learned that she had left most of her $76 million estate to Hamilton, to her caretaker, I thought that was incredible. Like, just a really interesting part of the story. Um, It doesn't seem like she was very close with her family. I don't know if she... I mean, she didn't have any kids, so I'm assuming when they say family that means just her, her, she had a lot of siblings, so I'm assuming a lot of her siblings survived her. Um, so taking a quick break in the episode to introduce a sponsor, this episode of Thick and Thin is sponsored by Rothy's. You guys might have heard of Rothy's before. Their shoes and bags are just amazing, and I'm so happy I got to try out a pair of their shoes. Basically, they're a company that makes stylish, sustainable shoes and bags made for life on the go. They're carefully crafted with eco-friendly materials, and I think my personal favorite thing about Rothy's is their shoes and how insanely comfortable they are. You just slide them on, they're so comfortable. Even the first wear, you know how sometimes with shoes you have like a break-in period where you get those awful blisters? Not with Rothy's, there is no break-in period. They are super soft, seamlessly knit. That being said, it's no surprise that they're a best-selling shoe. The Point in Black has over 3,000 near-perfect reviews, which is unheard of. And as of recently, I've been going on little walks throughout the day, throughout the neighborhood, um, when I can, and Sliding on my Rothy's shoes is so great. They're so comfortable and great to just like throw on with an outfit and walk around the neighborhood for a bit, get some steps in. And they're just so soft, I can't believe it. They come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns. And they're available in just so many different styles. I was shocked. Um, And they launch new colors and patterns every few weeks. And they sell out constantly. I just love the Point in Black, their best-selling shoe. I picked up a pair for myself. And I just love how they go with everything. They feel super comfortable on. Also, something so cool about them is just the whole sustainability element. They've kept 50 million single-use plastic water bottles out of landfills and transformed them into their signature thread, which is then knit into all of their beautiful, sustainable products. I also love knowing that they are machine washable, so it's just never been easier to clean your shoes than with Rothy's. And of course, as you guys know, my listeners get a special little deal. So check out all of the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash thick and thin. That's thick, the letter N, thin. And that's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash thick and thin. Comfort, style, sustainability, all of these things come together to create your new favorites with Rothy's. So check them out today. And thanks to Rothy's for sponsoring Thick and Thin. Okay, back in of the episode I think I mentioned this towards the beginning of me talking about her very briefly but basically her husband Anthony Stieglitz her husband lover took over 200 photos of Georgia in the nude like naked photos of her because um, he was a photographer he was a, a very good photographer but he was often kind of forgotten about people um, throughout his life, he was like kind of famous, kind of not famous, people cared about him, people didn't care about him, and uh, at the time of his death, so as I said, he was 24 years older than Georgia, so he died um, long before Georgia died, he also, I think he died of a some sort of illness, but um, he, towards the end of his life, was just completely, no one remembered him, no one knew who he was, and Georgia made it her mission as you know, as long as she lived like after him, past him, to continue his legacy and continue um, him being known as the father of modern photography, which I don't really think any of us know him as, but she really tried. She really loved him, even after all the shit he did to her. I can't believe it. Um, and yeah, there's like 200 just naked photos of Georgia O'Keeffe on the internet. <laughs> like, I mean, they're tasteful and they're very beautiful, but I just think it's crazy that at a time when women you know barely showed their knees georgia was was photographed just completely naked and he put them all in his gallery like they were up on display so this was a very strong woman to be able to go through that among everything else the three illnesses she had typhoid fever she had you know the influenza of 1918 she had um measles and she still she like had depression for a bit she still was painting she was still painting these beautiful works of art and when you see them displayed you'd never think or just know all that she went through to get there. Um, There's a lot of other things I left out of the story of how her mother died and you know just a lot of things but overall I just think that it's just Georgia is a really great picture of someone that went through the Roaring Twenties. She went through Everything that I was describing at the beginning of the episode, and still came out the other side. She lived a very long life. She had two beautiful homes in New Mexico. Nine hundred paintings she made. Nine hundred works of art throughout her life, and people are still taking so much inspiration from her. She has her whole. She has like her own museum, I believe, or her own like uh, the Georgia O'Keeffe like foundation or something like that. Um, and although she had no kids, even though she wanted children, she never had children. She still left on such a legacy. I feel like a lot of us. learn from her and still look up to her and I wish that she knew the legacy that she left behind Um, and I want to quote her she said I've been absolutely terrified every moment of my life and I've never let it keep me from doing a single thing I wanted to do and I love that quote because I feel like a lot of us are terrified (laughs) right now but also just during various parts of our lives as we're nearing you know in college graduation as we're just trying out or trying out, (laughs) it's not a play, trying to get new jobs and things like that. There's a lot of terror that comes along or just, you're, you're very scared a lot of your life, a lot of us. Um, and even those who come across like they aren't kind of are a little bit scared throughout their lives. But I think it's, it's not the feeling of being scared that gets you places, but it's the, the ability to get through it, to get over it, to triumph over that fear that really makes you or breaks you as a person you know, whether you do it or not. You just got to look the fear in the face and say, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and I actually do want to read a quote that's kind of related from Eleanor Roosevelt. A woman is like a teabag. You never know how strong she is until you put her in hot water. And I think that's ex- especially relevant right now with everything that's going on and with people trying to stay strong, people trying to laugh through it on social media. But it's, it's getting increasingly difficult to... Laugh about things like this because there is so much uncertainty. Because in the United States, we haven't hit the um, the what's it called the the we haven't leveled off yet. I don't know what it's called in the news where eventually the cases will start to slow. Right now, as far as I know, you know, sitting here, things are just going to kind of get worse for a bit. And my mom always says, you know, things get worse before they get better. But, you know, I think that we should take a page out of George O'Keeffe's book and Eleanor Roosevelt's book and a lot of the famous people that went through shit um, and know that this is making us stronger and this kind of makes us, it kind of brings forth in us, we know now how strong we can be once we get through all this. We'll be able to look back and say, you know, we did get through that. We, we did it. We were strong. And there's this quote that I saw on Instagram. It's like a funny meme thing. It was like, Um, the thing that we get to say to our kids someday is like, I was, you know, stayed in my room for three weeks. You can stay in tonight. You know, like us scolding our kids. Like when I was a kid, like when I was a a young adult, as I am now, like we'll be able to say this, that we went through this later on in life. And I think the best thing that we can do right now is just do the things that we never have time to do. I feel like I mean, yeah, if if it kind of suits your fancy to really relax during this time, do that. For me, I can't do that without going insane. Like, I can take a bath here and there, don't get me wrong, but I need to be just constantly project-focused, bracketing out my day with things to do, calls with people, constantly making content. That's just me and how I need to survive, (laughs) and I know myself. Um, But, you know, I, I think this is a time to do the things that we don't have time to do normally the things that we we say oh well we'll do that someday and like the things we keep pushing off for just someday down the line when we'll have more time like I think this is the time when we should be doing exactly those things I'm teaching myself calligraphy I've talked about that before I was doing actual like calligraphy pen like the the ink and everything the quill situation. But now I'm actually teaching myself brush calligraphy. So like faux brush calligraphy and calligraphy with markers. Um, So I'm really excited about that. And just like other little things. I might, you know, get some canvases and paint something. I don't know. It's tough with Amazon Prime being super horrendous right now and only essentials. Um, But yeah, just... Of course, focus on the ways that you can help the people that need it. And my mom's even actually going back to the hospital. She's a nurse, if you guys know, um, next week to administer some virus tests and help some people um, there. So, yeah, sending some good vibes to her would be great. Um, so, yeah, guys, that is it for this episode. I just wanted to talk a bit more about how history can truly repeat itself, how it kind of eerily is at the moment, and how it almost feels like we've been through this before before more so our ancestors have and how we will get through it again and I also wanted to talk about Georgia O'Keeffe which I love that I got to do uh, she's a remarkable artist please after you're done listening with this to this episode um, go look at some of her art look at some of the things she created during her lifetime um, and read more about her legacy because she is incredible and she also as we know survived the 1918 influenza outbreak and so you know she got through it we can get through it so yeah guys hope you all enjoyed this episode of Thick and Thin. I really enjoyed making it for you guys and researching all of these glorious things. Um, and just make sure you guys are following us on Instagram. We actually made a podcast Instagram page. Myself and my assistant put it together. Um, and we're getting this actually this girl that I met during one of my talks at University of South Carolina is actually doing the graphics for the page. So it's very cool. It's a group effort. Um, definitely follow us. It's at thick.thin, or thick.and.thin dot podcast i couldn't get like the normal i had to get like dots in between it's super annoying but you can just go to my page katie bilotti and i have it in my bio so just click that we're posting these really awesome repostable graphics with uh quotes from my episodes and just uh images from my episodes and things like that so definitely follow us um over on instagram and that is it for this episode guys thanks for listening and i'll talk to you all next week bye (music)